Welcome to PQ Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. I'm Pradeep Kumar, coming to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine. And I'm Rahul Demania from Cleveland Clinic Children's Hospital. And we are two pediatric ICU physicians passionate about all things MedEd in the PICU. PICU Doc on Call focuses on interesting PICU cases and management in the acute care pediatric setting. So let's get into our episode. So welcome to our episode of an eight-year-old boy with chest pain, fatigue, and shortness of breath. Here is the case presented by Rahul. An eight-year-old boy with up-to-date immunizations and no recent travel or pet exposure presented to the PICU with chief complaints of chest pain, fatigue, and decreased oral intake. His history over the preceding two weeks was significant for a diminishing appetite, episodes of vomiting, and shortness of breath. On examination, he was afebrile, with a heart rate of 127, blood pressure 104 over 57, and a respiratory rate slightly tachypnic at 38, with the oxygen saturation of 98% on room air. He appeared tachypnic and exhibited a combination of cardiac findings, which included a hyperdynamic left ventricle, a 3 out of 6 holosystolic murmur heard at the apex, and a 4 out of 6 systolic ejection murmur along the left upper sternal border. There was also a noted gallop on exam. Abdominal exam revealed a liver edge that was palpable one centimeter below the right costal margin, while neurological findings included involuntary eyebrow raising and decreased activation of the left face. Diagnostic studies revealed an enlarged heart on chest x-ray, sinus tachycardia with left ventricular hypertrophy and right axis deviation on EKG, and an echo that highlighted mitral valve inflammation or valvulitis with severe valvular and ventricular abnormalities. Now, looking at the labs, they were significant for an elevated BNP up to 2800, a slightly elevated troponin at 0.06, and inflammatory markers of ESR and CRP also elevated. His strep throat culture was negative. He did have a markedly elevated ASO and anti-DNA-B titers, and MRI confirmed multiple punctate infarctions, likely from a central embolic source due to his valvular heart disease. Now, given the complex multi-system presentation, this child now is admitted to the PICU for intensive monitoring and comprehensive management of this multi-system pathology. So Rahul, to summarize key elements from this case, we have an eight-year-old boy with worsening fatigue and shortness of breath. He has elevated ASO and anti-DNA-B titers. He has mitral valvulitis, some neurological signs, joint pain, and rash. All of these, Pradeep, I think bring up a concern for rheumatic fever, which is going to be the topic of our discussion today. So I think, Raul, what we should do is we should organize this episode into three parts. We will first discuss the pathophysiology and follow that with an approach to diagnosis and what investigations we need. And then finally, we will focus on management and prevention. Awesome. I love this organization. But let's go ahead and start with a short multiple choice question. So rheumatic fever is an autoimmune condition that can impact various organs, including the heart, joints, 
skin, and central nervous system. In a subset of children, which organ is at most risk for permanent damage due to rheumatic fever? All right. A, heart, B, skin, C, lungs, or D, GI tract? Rahul, the correct answer is A, the heart. As we will learn more in our podcast, symptoms of rheumatic fever vary greatly depending on which part of the body become inflamed. But most have good recovery except when there is involvement of the heart. Some children with rheumatic fever may not have any symptoms but still develop inflammation of the heart which subsequently disappears gradually, usually within five months. However, it may permanently damage the heart valves, resulting in rheumatic heart disease. Rheumatic fever does not cause long-term joint damage. The skin rash, subcutaneous nodules also will go away with time. And the CNS manifestations such as chorea usually last four to eight months with treatment. That's a great summary, Pradeep. And we're going to be going through the Jones criteria, which kind of helps us diagnose rheumatic fever. Um, but before we go into rheumatic fever, let's go ahead and understand the pathophysiology. Rahul, can you briefly dive into the pathophysiology of acute rheumatic fever? Absolutely, Pradeep. So acute rheumatic fever, it's an autoimmune disease initiated by humoral and cellular response. And this is primarily going to be stemmed from group A strep infection. Now, this response arises due to a very important pathophysiologic mechanism, and that's called molecular mimicry. So the streptococcal M protein, which is found in group A strep, has structural similarities with various host proteins, including cardiac myosin and tropomyosin. And so as a result, when our body's immune system targets the M protein, it also inadvertently targets these host proteins, leading to organ damage, particularly in the heart. Now, this mechanism even allows antibodies to cross the blood-brain barrier, and that's why we see in uh, certain cases of rheumatic heart disease manifesting symptoms such as chorea. All right, Pradeep, let's shift into the epidemiology of acute rheumatic fever. It must be pretty rare. I don't think so. But from an epidemiological perspective, you know, the bulk of acute rheumatic fever cases, over 80% of them, are usually found in low to middle income areas like uh, sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, and parts of Latin America. The indigenous populations in the Pacific Islands, uh, Australia, New Zealand, are also heavily affected. Now, the age group which is most at risk falls somewhere between uh, 5 to 14 years. Now, factors such as overcrowded households, limited healthcare access, and inadequate hygiene infrastructure further amplify the risk of acute rheumatic fever. Now, globally, the cardiovascular consequence of acute rheumatic fever, rheumatic heart disease, affects an estimated 15 million people every year and claims about 320k lives annually. Interestingly, while ARF incident is similar for both genders, women have 1.6 to 2 times greater risk of developing rheumatic heart disease uh, compared to men. Thanks so much, Pradeep. And, you know, just to really bring home the uh, pathophysiology, 
Recall that rheumatic fever, it's an autoimmune reaction to group A strep infection, and this is due to molecular mimicry. So when it comes to low-income regions, these patients may have untreated streptococcal infections that can then cascade the overall pathophysiology that we talked about. Excellent. As we dive deeper into acute rheumatic fever, Rahul, can you kick us off with some insights into the Jones criteria used for diagnostic purposes? Certainly, Pradeep. So this is a very popular and uh, truly historical criteria, and that's known as the Jones criteria. And the Jones criteria helps us diagnose acute rheumatic fever. Updated in 2015, the criteria now distinguishes between low-risk and high-risk populations. Low-risk individuals come from regions with an acute rheumatic fever incidence of less than 2 per 100,000 children annually or where the all-age rheumatic heart disease prevalence doesn't exceed 1 per 1,000 per year. And that's probably going to be in low-risk areas, such as uh, the United States. Now, for a definitive diagnosis of acute rheumatic fever, there has to be evidence of a preceding group A strep infection. And this then helps us understand that with rheumatic heart disease, the Jones criteria when you have two major manifestations or one major coupled with two minor criteria, you're going to uh, then uh, diagnose acute rheumatic fever. And just to remember, Jones stands for joints, acarditis, nodes, which are typically going to be painful, erythema marginatum, and S for Sindaham's chorea. So Pradeep, do you mind just recapping what are the major and minor manifestations? Awesome. Uh, So uh, what we have is the major manifestations are typically clinical. They include carditis, arthritis, erythema marginatum, subcutaneous nodules, and sedenum chorea. Their frequencies differ with carditis being the most common. On the minor side, we have fever, elevated inflammatory markers, prolonged PR interval on EKG, and some milder joint issues. Now, Rahul, can you dive a bit into differentiating factors between low and high risk populations that you elucidated earlier? Absolutely. So for low risk populations, polyarthritis is a major criteria, while polyarthralgia is going to be a minor criteria. In high risk populations, it's not a poly type of presentation, but more monoarticular. Now, remember, in high-risk groups, you could have polyarthralgias or polyarthritis, but the monoarthralgias ends up becoming more of a minor criteria in high-risk groups. Furthermore, thresholds for fever or inflammatory marker elevation are lower in high-risk individuals. So again, the sensitivity goes up with these inflammatory markers when you have a high-risk population based on epidemiology. Pradeep, talk to us a little bit about the arthritis specifically associated with acute rheumatic fever. Great question. The arthritis that's uh, seen in acute rheumatic fever is notably painful and and it migrates from joint to joint. Typically affects the larger joints like the knees and the wrist. Now, the joint pain is acute, but typically responds quickly to anti inflammatory medications such as NSAIDs. So remember this, the acute rheumatic fever licks the joints and bites the heart. As we pointed out earlier, the damage to the heart is permanent, but the damage to joints and other organs is transient. And hence, we use the phrase, licks the joints, but bites the heart. Exactly. Now, let's go ahead and shift to the permanent 
organ that is going to be damaged. And that's the cardiac symptoms. Now, carditis in acute rheumatic fever can range from mild to severe. Most rheumatic heart disease cases have the mitral valve impacted with early stages showing regurgitation, and then you get stenosis appearing later. So I just want to really emphasize mitral regurg, that is the acute form of rheumatic heart disease, whereas stenosis is if you get recurrent bouts of rheumatic heart disease. Now, the mitral valve is predominantly going to be affected, and the aortic valve is going to be the second most common. All right, so just going through the Jones criteria, we talked about arthritis, we talked about the other manifestations. Now we're going to go to the S, Pradeep. So what is Sindaham's chorea? Sure, this is marked by involuntary movements, and it's mostly of the trunk and the limbs, and it's often asymmetric. An interesting fact is that this movement completely goes away when the patient is sleeping. If Sydenham's chorea emerges on its own, other diagnoses like Wilson's disease or lupus must be in the differential diagnosis. Now, the last two manifestations, Rahul, can you talk to us about erythema marginatum and the subcutaneous nodules? Absolutely. So erythema marginatum is a blanching rash that is often going to be seen on the trunk and proximal limbs. Uh, remember that erythema marginatum, so the redness is going to be at the margins of the blanching rash. Now, subcutaneous nodules, meanwhile, are painless formations typically appearing over extensor tendons or elbows. So let's go ahead and review the criteria. We talked about the mnemonic Jones. Joint pain, erythema marginatum and nodules, there could be neurological abnormalities, endocarditis, and other minor criteria, which we talked about fever, elevated inflammatory markers, PR interval elongation on EKG, and other milder joint symptoms. All right, Pradeep, so let's recap. What would we do in the PICU if we had a high index of suspicion that our patient has acute rheumatic fever? Uh, Like we pointed out, uh, besides the clinical criteria, we also need some other supporting evidence. So what we will start with is uh, some evidence to support that there was past group A strep infection. So we will do a throat swab for rapid strep and a throat culture. We can do anti-streptolysin O antibody titers and anti-DNAs B titers. As far as blood tests go, we typically do CBC with differential blood cultures, inflammatory markers such as ESR and CRP, and of course, uh, a comprehensive metabolic panel. From an imaging standpoint and a cardiac evaluation standpoint, we typically get a chest x-ray, EKG, uh, and an echocardiography. Echocardiography is a critical tool that's actually recommended by the American Heart Association to gauge cardiac function and evaluate the extent of valvular involvement, even if there are no apparent signs of carditis, meaning anyone who has the diagnosis of acute rheumatic fever and echo is mandatory. Now, joint analysis, you can do a joint aspiration. It's mainly done for monoarthritic presentations to differentiate from like, say, septic arthritis, etc., In acute rheumatic fever, the synovial fluid is typically sterile and is marked by a lymphocyte predominance. Absolutely, Pradeep. And I think the lymphocytic predominance really alludes to the fact that acute rheumatic fever is more of an autoimmune type disease. So in diagnosing rheumatic fever in children, I think we need to have a very multifaceted approach encompassing the infection indicators, blood tests, imaging, 
and in specific cases, joint analysis. I think the take-home point in terms of diagnostics is always employ a comprehensive diagnostic measure for acute rheumatic fever, prioritizing echocardiography, even without overt carditis symptoms. So it's both clinical, laboratory, and echocardiographic. All right, Pradeep, we're going to end this episode talking a little bit about management of acute rheumatic fever. I think there are three crucial goals that we aim for. So Pradeep, do you mind just going through each of these, please? So the management of rheumatic fever, Rahul, has three goals. First, we want to eliminate any remaining strap infection. Secondly, we want to control any ongoing inflammation, especially in the heart and the joints. And third, we want to prevent recurrence and future infections. So to treat infection, long-acting intramuscular penicillin can be given as a single injection or amoxicillin is given PO. Additionally, symptomatic household contacts should have throat cultures collected and treated in case there are positive results. To treat inflammation, aspirin in high doses is the drug of choice. Naproxen can also be used with similar efficacy, but with less risk of Ray's syndrome. If joint symptoms do not respond to treatment with aspirin or other NSAIDs within 48 hours, then the diagnosis of acute rheumatic fever should be reconsidered. Like we pointed out earlier, the joint pain responds ASAP to aspirin or other NSAIDs. NSAIDs are typically continued till all inflammatory markers are normalized. Now, from a carditis standpoint, conventional heart failure therapy, which ICU caregivers are experts at, including bed rest, fluid restriction, and diuretic therapy must be considered. In addition, many believe that adding systemic steroids has therapeutic benefits in treatment of severe carditis Although the evidence to support this practice is lacking, and this is typically institution-based, and it can be sometimes a little controversial. If steroids are used, then aspirin or NSAIDs must be held, but restarted once steroids are discontinued. Any cardiac surgery, I repeat, any cardiac surgery must be delayed till all acute inflammation is resolved. Now, Rahul, can you talk to us about the management of Sydenham's chorea? Absolutely, Pradeep. So when we think about Sydenham's chorea, it typically resolves in an average of 12 to 15 weeks with treatment. Now, symptoms can unfortunately last for years, and this can be pretty debilitating. You know, treatment of Sydenham's chorea is recommended in those with significant motor impairment. I think corticosteroids has been shown in the literature to shorten the disease course but does not affect the relapse rate. And the relapse can recur in patients up to one-third of the time. Now, other typical and atypical antipsychotics and neuroleptic medications are reserved for resistant patients who end up having many relapses. I think prevention is going to be the typical modality of treatment that you will be hearing about, and that is typically going to be with prophylactic oral penicillin or amoxicillin. You know, the exact duration is really unknown, but prophylaxis may be required till 21 years of age or even longer if the patient has close contact with young children in the household. So I think just to summarize here, rheumatic fever management encompasses really a holistic approach. 
Uh, we want to eradicate the infection. We want to control the inflammation and to really make sure that we understand that there could be acute symptoms that we have to modulate, but then long-term prevention is going to be important with prophylactic antibiotics. So Pradeep, we're going to talk a little bit more about what's on the horizon. Do you mind just talking about what you have found in your literature searches related to rheumatic fever? Absolutely. So from my PubMed search, I didn't see any new therapeutics, but I found one study in a journal called Cardiology in the Young, May 2020, about the use of neutrophil to lymphocyte, comma, platelet to lymphocyte, and monocyte to lymphocyte ratios, which could be used to make a diagnosis of acute rheumatic fever and its prognosis by like serial measurements. The study also reported a positive correlation between Sydenham's chorea and neutrophil to lymphocyte and monocyte to lymphocyte ratio. This is just a single center study, but I bet you we will have other studies like this about the use of biomarkers for early detection of acute rheumatic fever, as well as its prognostication. I also think more research is required in earlier identification of group A strep, as well as a possible vaccine for prevention of group A strep. So Rahul, what are some of the clinical pearls or pitfalls to avoid? Absolutely, Pradeep. I think we as intensivists should be very familiar with the Jones criteria for the diagnosis of acute rheumatic fever and understand that we may be at times dealing with moderate to high risk populations especially at our tertiary or quaternary care institutions. I think early recognition of carditis and measures to treat heart failure with bed rest, fluid restriction, and diuretics is a must. And patients may need heart valve repair in severe cases of rheumatic heart disease. But like you mentioned, we want the tissue itself to be less inflamed. So we have to get them through the acute phase first. And then it is um, going to be very important for us to swiftly identify and treat acute rheumatic fever and start secondary prophylaxis with antibiotics like penicillin or amoxicillin to avert permanent cardiac damage, as well as even Sindaham's chorea. Remember, in closing, that as pediatric intensivists, we are first at heart pediatricians, and we play a pivotal role in primary prevention. So more advocacy regarding rheumatic heart uh, disease, especially when you see cases, being more mindful and communicating with your community pediatricians that this is a phenomenon that we're seeing in the area is going to be pretty helpful. And I think treating group A strep infections promptly in the outpatient setting, along with raising public awareness, can help us keep this on our differential and help treat these critically ill children in a more optimal way. This concludes our episode on acute rheumatic fever. We hope you found value in a short case-based podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback, subscribe, and place a review on our podcast. Please visit our website, pqdoconcall.org, which showcases our episodes as well as our Doc on Call management cards. PQ Doc on Call is hosted by me, Pradeep Kamath, and my fantastic co-host, Dr. Rahul Dimania. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you.